0: Uh, we began last week a new series in the book of first and Second Samuel and uh, really it's a series going through the Old Testament um, trying to ask and answer the question of where do we see Jesus throughout the Old Testament because Jesus himself says that the Old Testament is ultimately about him and so we want to ask the question well how is first and second Samuel ultimately about Jesus? Where does he fit in in this and where do we see him? And so we're going to be seeing that together in first, 1 Samuel chapter 4 all the way through chapter 7. Given the, uh, the nature of how many chapters we have and my long-windedness, uh, we won't go through and read every single verse. And, but I do want to encourage you to open up to 1 Samuel chapter 4 if you have a Bible. I'll be reading out of the ESV. Before we start, though, I want to remind us that last week we were introduced to the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, we said, is uh, this kind of box and it's the place in which God meets and and speaks to his people. It's the place where the mercy seat is and uh, the cherubim who are two angels that are on it. And um, it's also the place where uh, God's presence is said to be. And so um, here is a picture of what that might look like. And um, I want to read a little bit about that, having that picture in your minds. I want to refresh our memory because everyone I know remembered everything I said last week. But let me just, in case you did it, remember, let me refresh your memory. Exodus chapter 25, God speaks to Moses, gives him instructions on how to build the Ark of the Covenant. Somebody came up to me earlier and they said, the Ark of the Covenant, I love that. I remember seeing the Indiana Jones movie about it. Uh, not quite, but... We all love Harrison Ford, but different, different. All right, here we go. Exodus 25, verse 21 talks about the Ark of the Covenant. It says this, that uh, the instructions given to Moses, you shall put the mercy seat on top of the Ark, and in the Ark you shall put the testimony that I give you. And that is re- reference to the Ten Commandments. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment. For the people of Israel. And so you saw the two cherubim, those two angels, on either side of the top, the lid portion of the Ark of the Covenant. The lid portion is the mercy seat. The two cherubim are overshadowing the mercy seat. And God says, I will meet with you and I will speak with you at that location. And we also saw in Psalm 80, verse 1, where the psalmist writes, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned. So that's king language, talking about where God sits enthroned is upon the cherubim. And then he asks for God to shine forth. Restore us, O God, verse 3, let your face shine that we may be saved. And adding to that, the New Testament then goes on to describe the Ark of the Covenant like this, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. The Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna And Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And so you can see throughout the Old New Testament, the essential component of Hebrew worship was the Ark of the Covenant. That's the place in which God's glory dwelt. That's where he was enthroned. That's where the cherubim are overshadowing the mercy seat where God would speak and meet with his people. But we also see that the Ark of the Covenant was actually a place in which the people were reminded of God's provisions. You remember that manna was the heavenly bread that dropped for the nation of Israel when they were wandering wandering through the wilderness where they had no food. God provided for them, the manna. Not only that, but the people were grumbling amongst themselves about who is the rightful leader of Israel And Aaron is chosen to be the priest of God, and the tribe of Levi was being questioned about whether or not they were the rightful tribe to be priests to God. And so they took, uh, in order to settle the score and to quit all the grumbling and complaining, they took 12 staffs, wrote on each staff the name of the tribe, and put it into the tent of meeting. And they prayed, and God the next day caused Aaron's staff to bud. And that was the evidence that God used uh, to uh, validate Moses' command that Aaron and the tribe of Levi was to be priests. And so that was put in the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder of God's provision of leadership. And also the tablets of the covenant. It's the way in which God provided for his people in order to help them to live as people who are distinct from the other people on the earth. And so if you notice, when you put all these things together, there's a a real tight relationship between the presence of God, the glory of God, the uh, provision of God, the place in which God speaks, the place in which God meets with his people, but also because of Psalm 80. It's also a reminder to us that it's the place where you go to ask God for help, for salvation. Um, And so Psalm 80 says we go to God and we say above the mercy seat where God is enthroned, God, shine your glory on us that we might be saved. There's a relationship there. Now, the relationship between glory and the ark even goes on even more. When the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 40 were walking through the wilderness, how do you know where to go? There's no GPS back then. People just didn't know what they were doing. And so God would shine his glory during the daytime in a cloud. He would shine his glory in a pillar of fire at night. And he would lead his people throughout the desert. And wherever he wanted to have the people stop and set up camp, he would have his glory stop there. They would set up the tent of meeting, also called the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, in the tent of meeting, they would place the Ark of the Covenant. Once the tent and tent of meeting And tabernacle was erected and the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the tabernacle. The glory of God descended and it symbolized this is where God is enthroned on earth. So God who fills heaven and earth has chosen to condescend himself to the nation of Israel and to be found enthroned at the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where he would rest. Now, when we think about this, we also see uh, that the New Testament... Sees the same interconnectedness and in these relationships in a very similar way as the Old Testament. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I want you to see with me the glory of God, seeing God's face, let your face shine on us, that kind of stuff, and also salvation. So read this with me 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. He says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The Apostle Paul says, Look, there, there is there's this condition that people are in, unbelievers are in, and the condition that they are in is such that they are blinded to something. They have been blinded by Satan to keep them from seeing. And the question is, seeing what? And he says, They are blinded from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Or in other words, they cannot see, they do not have knowledge of the glory of God, the infinite worth of God in the person of Jesus Christ. They find Jesus is like, eh, whatever. They're indifferent towards him or altogether dismissive of him. They don't don't really give a rip. That's how you know whether or not you are an unbeliever. How much does Jesus mean to you? And then in verse 6, the Apostle Paul goes on and says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, referring back to the creation itself, when God spoke into existence all that exists, when God took uh, chaos and ordered it, when God took darkness and brought light, when God took where there was no life and brought life, that same God has shown in our hearts, in our dark hearts, to give the light Of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, what it means to be saved is simply this God God shines a light in our hearts which enables us to behold and perceive the glory of God. And not just any glory of God or whatever that means, but to actually look upon the person of Jesus as he's revealed in scripture and what we see there and what we behold in the person of Jesus. We say, wow, that's amazing. I love that. I love what I see. Now, only people whom God has shown a light in their hearts are able to say that. That in looking upon Jesus, we find God's glory there, his infinite worth, his beauty, his majesty, and we treasure it. And that's the same kind of language that the Old Testament used about the Ark of the Covenant. That's the place in which God's glory dwells. That's where God meets with his people. So now let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4. And we'll read together. (laughs) It's pretty interesting stuff. Sometimes we have more times. We just uh, so funny. This isn't funny. This is serious. But in chapter five, it's just it cracks me up, and I have a hard time just keeping it together. All right, here we go. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel and went. And when the battle spread. Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, so that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So when you stop there, I was just thinking to myself, why in the world did they get it in their minds that they should bring the Ark of the Covenant to the battlefield? And we have to remember, firstly, that the Ark of the Covenant was a reminder of God's provisions. God provided in Aaron's staff. God provided in the manna from heaven. God provided in the Ten Commandments. Therefore... Maybe if we bring the Ark of the Covenant to the battlefield, God will provide victory. All right. Second reason might be this. The Ark was the symbol of God's presence among his people. And so maybe they were thinking, you know what, if we bring the Ark of the the Covenant uh, to the battlefield, then God will be in and amongst us. So you brought God there. I'm going to stop there because everything that we're about to talk about today is going to flow out of that. And so I want to ask God to, to help us to grasp this and to really see what's going on. So God, would you do that for us? God, as we are looking at your scripture, would you help us to see all that we ought to see? And God, would you help our minds to be clear in the way in which we think? God, as the psalm 119 says, God, would you help us to behold the wondrous beauty of your word? And so, God, I pray that you would provide the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds and our eyes and our hearts to see, to think, to believe the things we we have in this text. God, ultimately, I pray that you would be glorified. And God, in in the way in which we glorify you, I pray that you would... Thrust upon us the joy that accompanies your glory. So, God, would you do that for us? If we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So, what are the people doing? Bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the battlefield. Well, what they're doing is they're trying to get God to do what they want God to do. In other words, they're trying to force God to act. They're trying to use God for their own desires, to accomplish their own goals. It's kind of the idea of like, hey, we have it in our minds and hearts to go accomplish this thing, so let's go accomplish it. But we know that God is a provider. We know that God is uh, present among us. We know that God is for us, not against us. And so we claim all these promises, all of them are gloriously and beautifully true. But then we take those promises and without actually inquiring of God himself, should I do this thing, we just do it. And then once we're in the midst of doing it, then we go, oh, yeah, by the way, God, can you bless what I'm doing? After all, you're the provider, you're the protector, you're our presence, you're, you're our victorious one. And then you start claiming all the, all the promises without ever inquiring, should we even be doing this in the first place? And we do this all the time, I have to be honest with you. Many of us treat God like this. We're going to bend God's arm. We're going to force him to act for us. We're going to do these things and then we're going to tell God, you better do this because you said you're like this. You said you are our protector, so protect us. You said this. Well, let's see what happens. (laughs) Verse 5. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said... Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a great, a very great slaughter. For thirty thousand foot soldiers of Israel fell. Yahweh's fame, Yahweh, the, the name of God, as he's revealed to himself in Exodus 3 and Exodus 33, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, whose presence is in the, upon the Ark of the Covenant, is brought to the battlefield, and his people are defeated. How can that be? Well, as we remember, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, is the place where the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be housed, The Ark of the Covenant is not supposed to be on the battlefield. So don't take it to the battlefield. It's not magic. Tim Chester in his commentary on 1 Samuel, I, I love how he gives this illustration. It's been so helpful to me. Here's what he says. He says, it is possible for us to treat God like a waiter in a restaurant. You're sitting with your friends, enjoying a meal, talking together. Most of the time you mainly just ignore the waiter. That is until you want something, and then you call him over. Uh, can we order dessert now? Can you bring some more water for us, please? Can we have the bill? The waiter does not sit at the table with you and enjoy the conversation. The waiter is not part of your evening. You just call him over when you need him. We can treat God like this, as though he's not part of our lives, and really we only call upon him when we need him. We do not take him seriously. It's not hard to end up seeing God in this way, to think perhaps unconsciously that by coming to church each Sunday, reading the Bible each day, and giving a portion of our income, we are doing our bit for God. And in return, we expect God to save us from hell, help out from time to time in our life, ensure that we are comfortable or happier, whatever it is that we wish to use him for. I don't know about you, but when I read something like that, I, I stop and immediately question, is that me? Am I literally just using God for my own desires and pleasures, as good as they may be? I love what C.S. Lewis does in the Chronicles of Narnia. You know that story? I encourage everyone to read Chronicles of Narnia. Love it. I read it every year, all seven books. And uh, it's a children's story, if you don't, aren't familiar, of it, but familiar with it. And one of the central figures is Aslan. Aslan is the central character who is the Christ figure, kind of the, the symbol of Jesus in the land of Narnia. He's a lion. He's a great lion. And C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia depicts Aslan as being this ferocious lion. And so the people, especially in the Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, they're explaining to the pervency kids uh, who Aslan is. And Susan asks the question, wait, he's, he's not a He's not a person? And Mr. Beaver says, no, he's the great lion. And they say, well, is he tame? And they said, no, Aslan's not tame. At the end of the story, Aslan is described, or is asked again, well, is, will Aslan be back? We have to remember, he's the great lion. He is not tame, but he is good. And I think that beautifully captures what God is like. God is the Lion of Judah. But we have to remember, he's not a tame lion. He cannot be domesticated. God cannot be manipulated. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. But God is good. So when I think about that, I have to remember, God is a consuming fire. And yet is my father. So these folks, they have forgot. They have forgotten the reality that God is not tameable. They have, in their stupidity, I guess you could call it, they tried to domesticate God and bring the Ark of the Covenant to the battlefield where he ought not to be. And they lost. The nation of Israel lost without the Ark, the nation of Israel lost with the ark, and it had grave results. Verse 11, the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, they died. And they died on the same day in fulfillment of chapter 2, verse 34, where God made the promise that this is a sign to you, that I am a God who not only makes promises but keeps them. Your two sons, as wicked as they are, they're going to die under my judgment on the same day. And there it is, booyah, judgment fulfilled. Eli hears about the defeat of the battle. He finds out in verse 17 that his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. But the worst news is when he comes to learn that the Ark of God has been captured in verse 17. So much so that in verse 18, as soon as it's mentioned, as soon as they, uh, the, the, the Benjamite who came and told him the news, as soon as he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backward from his seat by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died. For the old man was old and heavy. God made a promise. Eli, because of your wickedness, I'm going to judge you. Because you do not take my offering seriously. Because you don't take my sacrifice seriously. There is judgment coming. Hophni Phinehas die, and so does Eli. Now, his daughter-in-law, Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant. Verse 19, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have born a son. She did not answer or pay attention. She named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured because of her father-in-law and her husband. Verse 22, pay attention to the grammar here. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel because or for the ark of God has been captured. The Hebrew word for departed can also be sent to exile. And you can see that in your footnotes if you have a Bible with footnotes. It says gone into exile. In other words, the glory has gone into exile. It's been kicked out. Now, How has the glory of Israel been kicked out, been exiled? Because the Ark of God has been captured. And you see once again the relationship between the glory of God and the Ark of the Covenant. That above the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat, enthroned is God and his glory. So that when the Ark of the Covenant is taken, the very glory of God is taken. And so Ichabod is a child that will forever serve as a memorial to the day in which the glory of Israel was captured and sent into exile. Now we get into the funny part. But before we do that, let's talk about the serious stuff. When we talk about God's glory, it's really important for us to understand what we're talking about. It's easy to just mouth these words, the glory of God. We seek to glorify God and all this kind of stuff without understanding precisely what we're talking about. So we need clarity in this. The problem is talking about God's glory is so difficult because what we're trying to do is define God with human words. So we want to ask, what is God like? And we have to use human words to explain what we mean by God. And so therefore we said, what is God's glory? It's our attempt as human beings to use our human words to explain the infinite. So right from the beginning, we're in big trouble. We don't have a vocabulary big enough to explain who God is. But we have scripture. And what scripture is, is the self-revelation of God. It is God condescending to humanity and saying, you can't comprehend who I am or what I'm like, so I'm going to give you this book. And through this book, I'm going to communicate to you what I'm like. So if you want to know what I'm like, read the book. If you want to explain what I'm like, explain it in accordance with the book. But don't go beyond the book. Don't eliminate things out of the book and don't add to the book. The book is the book. Okay? So, if we were to take the book and we were to say, God, what is your glory? We would see that the book, the Bible, describes God's glory as his substance, his character, his brilliance, his majesty. His worth, His holiness. Big words. John Piper describes God's glory like this. It's the manifest beauty of His holiness. It's the way in which God's holiness is made evident to us in all of its beauty. Again, big words. But many of us need smaller words. Smaller concepts. And so over the years, I've tried to explain to our young adults when I was a young adult pastor here, I was trying to explain to them, okay, this is what the glory of God is like. And I would oftentimes be, I would encounter this face. I saw it in the first two services, same face. And I guarantee you when I'm about to explain, I'm going to see the faces. So make the faces, that's okay. Don't pretend you know more than you do. Here's my best attempt at explaining the glory of God God's glory is the beauty and the excellence of His manifold perfections. By beauty, I mean it is something that draws us to God. We want Him. Beauty, I'm attracted to it. And, and it's the excellence. Excellence meaning of highest standard. There is nothing better. And excellence also implies cannot be improved upon. So it's his beauty and excellence of his manifold, meaning a bunch, all kinds of, numerous. Perfections. Perfection is a noun here which means whatever God is and however he's revealed himself to be, whatever those nouns are, love, grace, patience, kindness, whatever they may be, that God is those things perfectly so. So when we talk about God's love, it's not just God's love is like human love. Nope. God's love is perfect love. God's grace is like the grace we give to each other. Nope. God's grace is perfect. Well, God is a person. He has personality. Yep. But He's a perfect person. So, whatever God may be in His manifest characteristics, as manifold as they may be, God is perfect in each of those things. Not because each of those things is like one aspect of who He is, like there's 10 attributes of God, and so God is one tenth this, and one tenth that, and one tenth that. No. God is fully love, fully grace, fully justice, fully all of that stuff, perfectly so. Now, I don't want to make God small because I don't want you to worship an idol. We got to make sure we understand God is big. I don't want a God I can beat up or a God I can explain because then I have a God of my own doing in my own creation. God is infinite. And so what I would say is this, God's glory is the perfect harmony of all of his perfections into one infinitely beautiful personal being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Perfect. Wow. What that also means is when we talk about God's glories, we're not playing games here. God's glory describes the very essence and nature and substance of God himself. So when we talk about God's glory, we're talking about God himself. And what's really interesting is in our culture, in our language, when we talk about things that are really, really important, we use this phrase sometimes where it's like, oh, that, that has weight to it. His opinion or his word has weight. Or, man, that concept is heavy. You talk like that? You heard people talk like that? And so when we talk about really important issues, we talk about the weightiness and the heaviness of the subject and content. You know, interestingly enough, the Hebrew word for glory, also the, the root of that is weight. It's heaviness when we talk about the glory of God. It's weighty. It's heavy. And so, therefore, it's serious. Here's what's funny. In chapter 5, verse 6, the Lord, the hand of the Lord was Heavy against the people of Ashdod. In other words, God's glory was pressing in and down among the people who are the Philistines in the city of Ashdod. It's weighing them down, bending their back. And then it says that the the Lord's hand is hard against the Philistines in verse seven of chapter five. And in chapter five, verse 11, it says that there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city and the Philistines recognized that it was the hand of God that was heavy upon them. The glory of God was weighing on these people. Okay, so now I ask the question, well, what was happening? Verse 1, chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Now, Dagon is a god of the Philistines. He's an idol. He's a statue. So there's the statue of Dagon and they bring in the Ark of the Covenant and they set it right beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And so they took Dagon and put him back in its place. That's how powerful their gods are. They have to be propped up. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord again. (laughs) But look what happens. The head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold and the trunk of Dagon was left was left to him. This is why the priests uh, of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Or in other words, these people who worship this God go in the next morning and before the Ark of the Covenant, before the place in which God's glory dwells, is their idol laying prostrate on the ground, bowing before Yahweh, the true God. Now think about this. (laughs) Now that was just day one. And then day two, they prop him back up, maybe put some hoist on him, make sure he's all up and upright. And they're like, no, 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 this is our God. He's powerful. Second day they come in, boom, he's on his face again. This time his head is off, hands gone. And there it is. And this should remind us of Genesis 315. Remember that promise? I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman's offspring. He, the, the offspring of the woman, will crush your head, Satan. And you shall bruise his heel. And it should remind us that, you know what, when it comes to the glory and majesty of God, every idol will one day end up with its head off and laying prostrate before the almighty and glorious God. Now, when you look at the response of the people, they're going, man, the the Lord's hand is heavy here. Or in other words, God's glory is serious. He's weighing down on us. And that explains why Paul writes that sin is falling short of God's glory. He says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, every human being has sinned and they fall short of the glory of God. Now we understand what Paul means by falling short of the glory of God. It is not giving God what is his due. And we think of sin as just like an adjective, like, oh, this dessert is sinfully delicious. Once again, we are trifling and we are playing games with big, gigantic, serious concepts like sin. Sin is not an adjective for the deliciousness of desserts. Sin is the cause of death. We're not playing games. And so thinking about that, we realize sin is not giving God glory. It's not acknowledging and recognizing his infinite worth. So sin is not recognizing God's beauty. Sin is not responding to God's majesty. Sin is not loving God's mercy and grace. Not obeying God's commands. Sin is when we do not tremble at the holiness and justice of God. Sin is when we do not receive God's love and kindness. Ultimately, sin is when we do not treasure God above all things. So the Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 1. The invisible attributes of God, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Nobody has an excuse to go, there's no God. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened. They did not give God what is his due. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Ultimately, sin is when we do not acknowledge the glory of God and give God what is his due. And instead, there's a great exchange that happens. We exchange the great glory of God for the glory of lesser things. We exchange the weightiness of God for the weightlessness of other things. And brothers and sisters, one of the reasons why we don't behold God and see him as infinitely beautiful and delightful in our treasure is because our appetites have grown dull. We just don't want glory like that. Why in the world would you mess around with glory, infinite glory? When you have Netflix. And so what we have done as a people is we said, you know what? The infinite glory of God is what God has wired me to experience for my everlasting joy. But I can't wait that long. I need instant gratification, instant satisfaction. Give me my Netflix account. And through constantly beholding lesser glories and lesser joys and lesser satisfaction, we have grown an appetite for lesser things. And so when we conjure the idea of a greatness and an all-satisfying pleasure in God, we just can't fathom that notion because we just want our fantasy football team to win this week. Are you you tracking with me? C.S. Lewis says it like this. God does not find our desires too great. He finds our desires too small. For we are fools playing about with drink and sex and food and ambition when God has offered us infinite joy. And because we are satisfied with so little, we have a hard time comprehending so much. Now, When you have something like that and you think about the greatness of of God and and that that goes countercultural to today. Because we don't the the idea of laying prostrate, humble before God, we think, man, that, that doesn't sound very fun. Fun is my God. Church should be fun. Well, here's the reality is we need to realize that that fun is a lesser good. Joy is what you need to be aiming for. And if you really want joy, the the greatest place in which you can find joy is by being humbly, prostrate, laid out before the grandeur and majesty of God Almighty. That is your greatest joy. Now, it's hard for people to uh, conceive of that. They're like, well, how does that work? Being humble is joyful? No, no, no. One of the reasons why this is so hard is because in our culture, we are committed to being made much of rather than being committed to make much of others. Being humble means you can acknowledge others and make much of them. But being proud means you demand and want to be made much of yourself. Okay? So our culture is addicted to being made much of. And the product is social media. Look at me. Like me. Love me. Share me. Talk about me. Me, 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 me. Now, how in the world does humility and joy go together? Because most people in America will consider humility as the enemy of joy. And I would say, no, 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 no. Joy and humility are not enemies. They complement one another. They go together. Now, let me give you an illustration from just the natural world and show you what this looks like. If you've ever been in high altitude or stood beneath a moonless and cloudless night sky, you've ever beheld the seemingly endless number of stars in the sky. You can see almost the, the star cloud of the Milky Way just going across the sky. You've seen that before? You got to get out more if you haven't. Or... Like me, have you ever sat in a meadow at Yosemite National Park and you gazed upon Half Dome in one side and you turn around and you see El Capitan on the other? And you look at those granite walls and you think to yourself, oh my goodness, wow. Or have you ever driven into Zion National Park and literally had your breath taken from you when you see the colors of the reds and orange and yellows and deep purples of those hills and and those cliffs all around you, and you're thinking to yourself, this has to be fake. Somebody dyed the dirt. This can't be real. If you have ever experienced those things, then you know a bit of what it's like to stand before the glory and majesty of God. Because nobody stands in Zion or Yosemite National Park or stands at high altitude under the endless uh, stream of stars before our eyes in the sky. And no one ever says to themselves, look at this. Aren't I awesome? <laughs> if anyone was to do that, you would be tempted to disassociate with them for being a meligomaniac, right? They're just like, man, you t- for real? Nobody sees stuff like that, grandeur like that, and, and, and throws themselves forward as being the most important thing in that moment. You are humbled by the majesty. You are humbled by the grandeur. You are humbled by the beauty and the immensity of all that you see. Do you know what I'm talking about? And you feel as though you are little and nothing. And yet at the same time, when you are feeling humble and small and inconsequential, you also get the sensation of welling up in you. There's joy. I I feel, I love this moment that I am made so low. There's no other place I'd rather be than seeing the sunrise in Yosemite Valley. I'm filled with joy. And so when we see the grandeur and the majesty and the beauty and the, and the sheer immensity of all of God's glory and we look upon it and we are just plunged down on our face in humility and we can't rise and we can't look eye to eye with God. He is greater than I. And you stand there. It is not the enemy of joy and find you'll find yourself prostrate on your face that there will be an explosion of joy, immense joy coming from you for being in the presence of such beauty. Is that how you describe your relationship with God? Do you remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4? God has shown a light in our heart so that we can behold the glory of the gospel that is in the face of Christ Jesus. When you think of Jesus, does it compel you to fall prostrate humbly on the ground in acknowledgement of his greatness? And in there, do you experience the joy? That's why I pray so often for God's glory and for our joy because they go together. The greater God is in our imaginations and in our minds and in our hearts, also too, the greater the joy. If you want small God, you get small joy, and you'll be satisfied with church with fun today. I don't want fun. So when your kids come home and say, church wasn't fun, why not? Because all they did is talk about Jesus. You need to correct them and say, praise God that that's all they did was talk about Jesus. And you better pray with your kids. And you need to disciple them in such a way that they begin to understand the more we talk about Jesus, the bigger vision we get of Jesus. And the more of Jesus you have, the greater the joy is going to become. Oh, man, it's good. I'm so late. We're gonna fast forward some things. You know the word there, the glory has departed, the glory has been exiled. That was a consequence for sin. If you remember when Adam and Eve sinned, they got booted out of the garden. When the nation of Israel eventually was sinning and sinning and sinning, they eventually were taken off into captivity. The Northern kingdom was taken over by the Assyrians. The Southern kingdom was taken over by the Babylonians. They were sent into exile. Exile is a consequence for sin. Deuteronomy 28 says that God, God says, if you don't obey me, I'm going to exile you and disperse you among the nations. Exile, separation from God is the consequence for sin. So now let me ask you this question. According to verse 22, the glory has been exiled from Israel because the ark of God has been captured. Let me ask you this question. Who went into exile? Did the people of God go into exile because of their sin? No. The glory of God went into exile. What that means is God seeing his sinful people did not punish them according to their sins, but instead introduced himself as a substitute and took upon himself the punishment for their sins where you ought to be exiled and get booted out of here, I'm not going to do that right now. I'm going to let myself be exiled in your place. Does that sound familiar to anybody? You see, that reminds us of the cross of Jesus. You see, Jesus is God come in the flesh, who substituted himself for sinful people, where we were supposed to live sinlessly and perfect And we could not because of sin and because of the evilness of our heart and our wicked desires, Jesus came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus was perfect for us. But not only that, Jesus, knowing that there's a penalty for sins, somebody's got to pay. And it isn't us who are Christians who pay. It's Jesus who stopping the execution of us introduced himself and took upon himself the necessary consequences for sin. Being exiled from fellowship with God and he took upon himself the judgment of sins on the cross. But not only that. When we think about sin is not giving God glory, and, and glory is the weightiness of God that's pressing in upon you, you and I, we feel sin. We feel the weightiness of God's glory. It's called shame. It's called guilt. It's called regret. And so when you feel the weightiness of that, and you feel that you're starting to hunch over, and you're being overwhelmed by the immensity and weightiness of God because of your sin, brothers and sisters, you better not just try to I'm gonna push up on it. God is infinite, and you are not. And so therefore, there is nothing you can do to keep yourself from being crushed by the sheer weight of God's holiness. That is, unless somebody takes you out from beneath the weight of God's holiness and puts himself in there, and that's exactly what Jesus does. The weight of God's glory was so heavy and so weighty that it pressed in upon Jesus, and does what Isaiah 53 says, it crushes Jesus for our iniquities so that you and I will be set free. The glory of God's justice, the glory of God's mercy, the glory of God's love, the glory of God's wrath, all of that is satisfied at the cross. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus rose from the dead. And when Jesus rose from the dead, from Friday to Sunday, everyone was wondering, what's going to happen? Our hopes, are they dashed? Was he not who he said he was? Was his payment insufficient? Is there something more than Jesus we need? But on that Easter morning when that tomb was empty, it tells us that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. The debt has been paid. You know when you write a check, and I know young people, you have no idea what a check is. You know when you write a check and you log into your online banking and you keep checking to see when the check clears? When you write the check, it's like when Jesus went to the cross. When you sign into your online account and you see that check has been cashed and it's cleared, that's like the empty tomb. The debt is paid. It is finished. So, brothers and sisters, the people of the Philistines, they were terrified. They were like, get this out of here. And so they said in verse 5, let's get rid of the Ark of the Covenant. And then the leaders of the Philistines say, give glory to God of Israel. In other words, let us give God what is his due. Because in so doing, perhaps he will lighten his hand from us. You see what they're saying? We didn't give God glory. We didn't see him as powerful, and now we're inflicted by his glory. You see, the gospel, there's one thing the gospel never does. You know what that is? Nothing. The gospel never does nothing. It either hardens hearts or it softens them. Like Augustine used to say, the same grace of God will heart, or the same sun will harden clay and melt wax. The glory of God will harden hearts or it will melt hearts. And the Philistines' hearts are beginning to melt. And the result is they repented. And we'll conclude with this, chapter 7, verse 3. The people of Israel received back the Ark of the Covenant They rejoice when it comes back. The glory of God has returned. Once there was death, now there's life. Once there was no glory in Israel, now it's back. But some people looked at the ark in an improper way and they died. Because God is not to be trifled with. God is not a game. God is not to be a flippant thing. And so the people are humble and they're repenting and lamenting. And Samuel says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and asterisk from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him. He will deliver you. You see, the truthfulness of our repentance, turning away from ourselves, is not found in how sincere we are. Whether or not our repentance is true is measured by what our hearts we are surrendering our hearts to an allegiance of. So if I'm committed to this thing, in order to be truly repentant, I I can't be committed in any way, shape, or form to this thing anymore. I gotta be committed, committed over here. My allegiance must be to another. And so if you're truly repenting, he says, then get away from the idolatry. Direct your hearts to the Lord only. Brothers and sisters, that's the trouble with idolatry today. It is a heart issue. It's a worship issue. Many of us dismiss idolatry as being, that's that's weird. That's what people do. They light incense and candles and they bow down before a statue. I don't do that. I'm not an idolater. Well, Ezekiel 14.3 says that idolatry is when we bring these things into our hearts. It's a heart issue. It's what we are connected to. Idolatry is basically when we take the good gifts of God like family, like work, food, sports, possessions. We take these good things and we make them ultimate things. These things become to us what gives us security and significance and safety and comfort and fulfillment and purpose in life. Most of us think that idols are bad things. They're not. Almost never are they bad things. Idols are usually good things that you make into an ultimate thing. So how do you know if you're an idolater? Tim Keller in his book Counterfeit God says this, and we'll close with this con- with this idea. An idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living anymore. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passions and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children, career, making money, achievement, critical acclaim, saving face, social standing. It can even be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence, skill, security, and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political and social cause, your morality, your virtue, or even your success in Christian ministry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I only had that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. And in that moment, I will feel significant and secure. Now, we are Christians, and so therefore we love, 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 family. But that's one of the idols that many of us don't pay attention to. Your family can become an idol. And it works like this, parents, and and I, I feel the pressure of this, and so I can speak out of experience. We know our children have become idols to us when we look upon them and their performance, whether it's in sports or it's in academics or it's in their morality comparatively uh, to the other kids. And we look at them and we recognize their performance on the baseball field or the soccer field or their performance in the classroom or their performance morally speaking. They don't look at that icky stuff. They don't have a cell phone and look at pornography. They don't, don't do all that stuff. And, and you find in their performance, yes. Because they behave this way, it shows to everyone else what a good parent I am. And so you are finding your significance and your value in the performance of your children so that if they misbehave, it's not a a, a sin against the glory of God. It's a sin against your glory. And when they don't perform in the classroom, you look like a bad parent. When they don't perform on the field, you look like a bad parent. And you know what you end up doing? You end up deifying your children. I want you, child, to live such a perfect, great life that you will bring me ultimate joy. So go perform on the baseball field. And if you don't, you're going to get it. (laughs) And you better perform in the classroom. And if you don't, it's going to reflect on me. Do you see what I'm talking about? What kind of weight would that put on children? Oh, my beloved child, you're my God. Do for me what only God can do. You kidding me? So, what do we do? We have to repent of that and we have to uproot that idol and we need to get rid of it. But you don't just get rid of idols, you have to replace them. It's like weeds. You pick one weed, guess what? Next week is back. The best way to prevent weeds if your backyard is just dirt is what? Landscape it. Don't just pick weeds all the time. Therefore, we need to replace our idols. And we know that we have replaced our idols. When we can look at our idol and we can say this, because I have Jesus, I can live without you. Or you can look at your child in the face and grab them on their cheeks and look at them in the eyes and say, whether you fail or succeed, I'm going to support you, encourage you, help you, disciple you. And because I have Jesus, your performance doesn't dictate my self-worth. You get that? Now take out children and put in anything else you want. If I get this promotion, then my life will be satisfied but since you have Jesus are you okay to not get that promotion since you have Jesus are you okay that people don't recognize you on social media because you have Jesus are you okay that you live in Antioch and not Brentwood (laughs) I told somebody the other day I live in Antioch and they go oh are you planning to move to Brentwood I sense some pride there. <laughs> but brothers and sisters, do you see what I'm talking about? Samuel says, if you're truly going to turn to the Lord and get rid of these idols, direct your heart to God. Replace the idols with a better thing. And there is no better thing, no greater thing, no more joyous thing than Jesus. Jesus. So, God, that's our aim, that's our goal, is that there would be nothing in our lives which would ever take the place that is rightly yours in our hearts. God, as you were enthroned upon the cherubim of the Ark of the Covenant, would you be pleased to be enthroned upon our own hearts? So that way, we will not be tempted with what the world has to offer us, which are lesser loves and lesser good things and lesser gifts. But God, let us be unashamedly, unhinderingly, completely committed and satisfied with Jesus. And so God, would you shine in our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus so that when we behold him and all that he is and all that he's done, we will feel the overwhelming sense of joy. For we know that you have bought us and we are yours. So God, do that for our church, I pray. Let us see you greater than we do. And let us experience the joy in greater ways than we do.